The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Continue our study of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 14. We'll read down this morning uh, to verse 30. Luke records this. He says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, You'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. It is also the word of the Lord for us next Sunday morning. When I say the word to you, homecoming, what images does that conjure up in your mind? What do you think of when you hear the word homecoming? I'll give you just a second to think about it. I know what comes to my mind when I hear the word homecoming. I immediately, in my mind, go back to high school and college. Every year, there was a a homecoming uh, football game and a a homecoming king and a homecoming queen. And homecoming was always the time at school where, you know, all the alumni would come back and watch the football game and be a part of festivities. It was an opportunity for 
for, for those who had once been at the school, who've now gone their separate ways and doing their own thing, to, to come back and reconnect with their alma mater and relive the glory days, if you will. That's what I think of when I think of homecoming. Do you think of other things? Uh, it was a good thing. I, I, I always enjoyed homecomings. Uh, my church that I grew up with often had a homecoming. Did your church, if you grew up in a church, have a homecoming? It was sort of a time when people who were once a part of the church but had moved away and gone other places uh, would, would, would try to make a point to come back, and there'd usually be some sort of a fellowship and some sort of a, a meal where you would have the opportunity to reconnect with people maybe you haven't seen in a long time who were once a part of the church. And I can remember growing up some homecomings. Whatever, whatever sort of uh, things that the word conjures up in your mind— uh, in my mind, at least, it's always a, a good and positive thing for the most part. Homecomings are good. But we pick up in Luke's gospel, we begin with a new section uh, from what we've been studying, and we see here Jesus having a homecoming to remember. Some homecomings uh, I can remember uh, that, that, were, that were special, different things happened. There are others that were, you know, just sort of lost in the memory banks because nothing really important happened on them. But Jesus' first homecoming back to his home church in Nazareth was a homecoming to remember. We just read the text. Uh, it's not often that you come back uh, for homecoming and uh, nearly get killed. So this is what happens to Jesus on his, on his first venture back to his hometown and to his home church. And Luke records this event for us here sort of a, a, as he launches a new section that's going to really focus really for several chapters on Jesus' Galilean ministry. And Luke, as we've been talking about from the beginning, is a very careful writer. He is writing specifically uh, immediately to a man by the name of Theophilus, but in general to a broader audience of people who, like Theophilus, struggle with doubts about their faith. And he's writing to, to shore up faith in believers that Christ is, is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he's going to give us uh, reason after reason throughout this gospel to believe that and to be reaffirmed in that. And so Luke is choosing very carefully the things in Jesus' life and ministry that he records, and he's, also, and he's also carefully choosing what to omit that we find some of the other gospel writers writing about. And just as a reminder, Luke isn't going necessarily chronologically here. He's picking items that happen in the life and ministry of Jesus, and he's sort of arranging them in a sort of logical format that's going to drive us toward the end of fortifying our faith in Christ. And so that's what we're doing, and that's what Luke's doing, and that's what this whole section is about, beginning in verse 14, and, and as I said, running through the next few chapters. And we're told right at the beginning here, via sort of a transitional verse, uh, this— Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the all, the, all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we see Jesus. We, the last we've, we've seen in, in this gospel, he was, um, he was out being tempted by, by Satan in the, in the Judean wilderness. Well, between then and now, he's gone about ministry for a bit of time. Uh, in the area of Judea. John, the gospel writer, records the things that were happening chronologically during that time. But Luke jumps ahead now to his Galilean ministry, and he tells us here that uh, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. If you don't know much about Jesus' background or much of the area, Galilee is the area in which Jesus was raised. It was sort of his home region, if you will. It was sort of his home area. 
there were plenty of opportunities for him to do ministry in Galilee. Uh, I don't know if you can read the map. Can you read the map? Can you see Galilee's kind of right in the middle there, that, that sort of section just to your left of the Sea of Galilee there. It includes towns like Nazareth, Nain, Tiberias, Capernaum, Chorazan, Cana. Uh, remember a wedding that took place there? All of this is in the area of Galilee, and it's in, in this season of ministry that Jesus is spending, a, he's going to spend a little over a year, uh, maybe close to a year and a half in this region doing ministry. Historians tell us at the time of Christ, there were about 250 villages and cities in that region of Galilee. So there was between 240, 250, depending on who's counting. But there were plenty of places for Jesus to go. Let's just make that statement, right? He had plenty of places to go to do ministry in that area. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian says this, he says, the cities lie here very thick, and the very many villages here are everywhere so full of people by the richness of their soil that the very least of them contain about, or above, 15,000 inhabitants. So lots of villages, lots of cities, lots of people in this region. And Jesus is making his way around, and he's teaching in their synagogues, we're told, and he's uh, doing miracles. He doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't hear, but we find from the Synoptic Gospel writers that he's also doing ministry and he's doing miracles in some of these locations while he is teaching. And the reception uh, is, is good in general. But his primary activity as he's going about his ministry is a teaching ministry. Jesus was a remarkable teacher. And that was what he did primarily. He taught. He went from place to place, beginning in the synagogue and then out into the broader area teaching. He was a magnificent teacher. He was a teacher who captivated audiences. He was a teacher who understood what it was to connect with his audience. He knew how to, how to speak about things that, that mattered to people. And he knew how to present what he wanted to say in a way that was appealing, in a way that, that connected with the hearts and the minds of the people whom he taught. People loved to listen to Jesus. They loved being with him and being around him. I don't know of many other teachers that I've run across in my life that people are sort of clamoring to hang around with and to sit with for three days with very little food, just listening to him teach, right? We're doing good to get, you know, 45, 50 minutes here, you know, and lunch is there. Um, but three days? He was a remarkable teacher. He was a charismatic teacher, and I mean that in the sense that he had charisma. Uh, I, I remember sort of the movies that I saw growing up, uh, of the Jesus movies. Maybe you saw Jesus movies when you were growing up. Uh, I don't know. And all of them sort of present Jesus a little, different, uh, a little differently. Uh, but one of the things that was, was always sort of interesting to me was, they, at least this is my recollection, they largely presented Jesus as sort of a boring figure. He just kind of came off to me as sort of, pedantic, if you will, just sort of pedestrian and average. He just sort of floated through life, not really going, you know, emotionally up or down. He sort of taught in the movies, at least the way they depicted him, was sort of the, uh, the, the charisma of, uh, of, you know, uh, of a monotone person reading the phone book or something. And, and uh, it, it was just a very sedate Jesus uh, that, that I saw, at least depicted in the films growing up. 
One of the reasons why I like the series that's out there now uh, called The Chosen is because I think uh, these, these movie makers at least have made a, a valiant effort and I think largely been successful at presenting Jesus as a charismatic figure, as an engaging figure, as someone people wanted to be around, someone people wanted to listen to, someone that people were drawn to, even children were drawn to him. I mean, you have to be a pretty good communicator for kids to be drawn to you and to want to sit and listen to you. Like I, I, you know, I've done ministry for a while and in the early years I was a children's pastor and then I was a, a student minister and I can remember those years very vividly. And I remember the advice I got one time that was so true. I learned it by experience after being told it. And that was this, somebody told me one time the difference between teaching teenagers, in this case it was primarily middle schoolers, and, and adults. They said the difference between teaching middle schoolers and adults is Middle schoolers, if they're not interested in what you're talking about, they have the courtesy of to do something else while you're talking. If they're not interested and you're not engaging them, they'll find something else to do. They'll find someone to talk to or they'll find something else to do. You'll have no question about whether you're engaging them or not. Adults, on the other hand, are not so courteous. They do what you're doing right now. They just look at you. And you sometimes wonder, are they alive or are they dead or are they just there? Someone pulled the fire alarm, would they move? You have no idea whether there's a connection or not. But middle schoolers let you know. But Jesus was an attractive teacher. He was an outstanding teacher. People were drawn to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They didn't always like what he had to say. They didn't always respond positively to what he had to say. But they listened and they wanted to know. And the way that he presented himself largely had people walk away going, nobody teaches like this guy. I've never heard anything like this before. Even toward the end of his ministry, the temple guard is sent to, literally sent to arrest him in the temple by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're sent to arrest him, and they come back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they say, well, where's Jesus? And they say, all they can say is, nobody ever taught like this person. We've never heard anything like this. Never heard anything like this guy. His ministry was a teaching ministry. He did other things. But he taught primarily. He taught truth. But his teaching, like everything else in his ministry, was, was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're told that right at the beginning. The Holy Spirit, we've seen, has been prominent in Luke's gospel, right? Uh, he was conceived at the very beginning in Mary's belly by, by how? The, the Holy Spirit. And, and we saw just recently, after his baptism, we, we saw at his baptism, the, the Spirit descending like a dove. And then after the baptism, we're told that he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. And here we're told that his teaching ministry is empowered by the Spirit. Spirit-filled teaching, if you will. And so he's going about doing his ministry in, in, in the power of the Spirit. He's glorified by all, and he's doing this in the Galilee region, Luke tells us. But as he's going about his ministry in Galilee over this lengthy period of time, at some point along the way, the Spirit of God leads him back to his hometown. And we're told that he goes back to Nazareth. To Nazareth. Again, it's been about a year of ministry that Jesus has been doing up to this point, so he's gained some notoriety. Word has begun to spread about who he is and the kinds of things he's talking about and some of the miraculous things that he's doing. People are, are, are spreading that. I mean, there's no CNN, there's no MSNBC, there's no Fox News to capture it live, but people are remarkably good about spreading gossip and telling other people what's going on. And word travels pretty quickly. And so by the time Jesus gets to Nazareth, People have heard about what's going on. People have heard about what's going on. 
This is the first Luke records here. This is the first of two visits that we have of Jesus coming back to Nazareth. This is the town he grew up in. This is his hometown. It is for him a homecoming. He would have been very well known here in this town. People would have known him. They would have, they would have grown up with him. There would have been other people his age that, 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 that grew up with him. There were kids with him that played outside with him. They ran around town kicking a ball or doing whatever you did as kids in Nazareth. I don't know, chasing a donkey. Whatever you did, they did it with him. Maybe they donkey tipping, you know, or something. I don't know. But whatever they did in Nazareth, Jesus had friends that did it with him. And they grew up with kids and his teenagers and, and his young adults. And he was, a, he was a carpenter in his father's wood-making um, business. And, and people would have known him through business contacts from that. And, and he would have grown up as a normal life, really, for the bulk of his life. And in doing life just like you do life in your hometown, people know you. And people have met you, and people have done things with you, and they've heard about you, and you have a reputation, and all those things that are part of growing up somewhere, Jesus had in Nazareth. And so he's gone away for a while, and now he comes back. Nazareth is sort of an insignificant, off-the-beaten-path sort of a town in Jesus' day. It's not thought very highly of. In fact, when Jesus is calling his disciples, one by the name of Nathaniel is, is, is told by one of the other disciples, come, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And his response immediately is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, that place is a, is a, is a dump. Nothing worth anything ever came out of there. Jesus became known as Jesus of Nazareth. The name stuck, but it wasn't always given to him by people who had the best of intentions. It wasn't exactly a compliment to be so-and-so of Nazareth. But that's where he was from, and that was his hometown. And so he goes there, and Luke tells us when he goes back to Nazareth, he does what he does in almost every town that he goes to. He goes to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's what Luke tells us. Now, in case you don't know what a synagogue is, a synagogue is just simply a local assembly of Jews that have gathered for worship. Just so there's no confusion, it's not the same thing as the temple. Uh, you may have, as you read your Old Testament, you, you read about the temple and all of the worship that takes place at the temple and the priests at the temple and all the sacrifices that happen at the temple and all the ornate sort of uh, 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 building at the temple and all the, the, the facilities and so forth. And all of what happens at the temple happens only at the temple. But synagogues were different from the temple. Synagogues were, were small, local assemblies. They were local assemblies where, where local small groups of Jewish people got together primarily for the purpose of teaching and being taught. They also provided sort of instruction for children, maybe in some way parallel to what elementary schools do today. Well, not what elementary schools do today here, but in general, that, that idea of, of instructing children. The, the synagogues also served sort of as a, a social hub for the Jewish community. So everybody was a part of the synagogue. You, you were a part of your local synagogue. It was where you went to be taught. It was where you went to open the scrolls of the Old Testament and to study and to learn. It was where you went to, to sort of interface your life with the rest of the, the God-fearing Jewish community. You were a part of that family. In fact, one of the worst things that could happen to you is to get kicked out of the synagogue, to get unsynagogued was social disaster. It was to be shunned and to be thrown out of everything that mattered in social life and social connection. It was to be cut off from the teaching of God's word. These things came about because you may recall in 586 BC, the Babylonians come through and they destroy the temple. 
and you can't go to the temple anymore to worship. And, and God's, God's people, the Israelites, are exiled, and they're spread all over the place, and there is no temple to go to. And so synagogues sort of become these small gatherings where people get together to teach and to study the Old Testament, and that begins to evolve into what, by the first century, are called synagogues. To establish a synagogue, you just needed 10 Jewish men, uh, 13 years old or older. Anywhere you had 10, you could form a synagogue. And so these synagogues were all over the place. They, were, they, they normally met in a location and had, they were outfitted with benches sort of around the perimeter. The men and the women were separated. The men sat in one location. The women sat in another location separate. The, the men were seated by sort of an order of rank and importance in the synagogue. Aren't you glad we don't do stuff like that nowadays? Right? But that's what they did in the synagogue. There were no full-time pastors. There were no teachers. Anyone uh, who was approved by the ruler of the synagogue could teach uh, the Old Testament in the synagogue. And, and it was not uncommon. If a, if a noted teacher came through town and attended the synagogue, it was very common to invite them to teach and to, to read from the scriptures. And so the, the synagogues were ruled by elders, and, and there was a chief elder who was referred to as the ruler of the synagogue. He wasn't the preacher he wasn't the one who taught. He was the one who was responsible largely for conducting worship, for approving the teachers, and for being sort of a caretaker of the, the Old Testament scrolls, making sure that they were cared for and selected each week uh, as the people gathered to worship. A typical worship service looks different than what we gather and do here in our context today, but there are some parallels. The service would begin as the people of God would gather. There'd be thanksgivings at the beginning or blessings, if you will, that would be followed by a recitation of the Shema, which was a piece of the Old Testament that, that Jewish people recited verbatim every time they gathered. Uh, after that, there was a prayer that would be had for the whole group to which the congregation would all say, Amen. Well, just say it with me. And all God's people said, Amen. That's what would happen at the end of the prayer and the worship of the synagogue. And then there would be two readings. There would be a reading from the, from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and it would be read in Hebrew from the Hebrew scrolls, and then it would be summarily translated into Aramaic so that the people could understand what they were hearing because that was the common language. And after that reading, there would be a second reading. It would be from the prophets. And the same sort of translation would take place. And then after that, a sermon would be delivered. Some type of, a, of something similar to an expository sermon today would be delivered relating to the passages that were read. Oddly enough, when they read Scripture, everyone stood. And then when it was time for the sermon, the person teaching would sit down and teach. So it's kind of backwards to what we are doing today, right? I'm standing, you're sitting. Um, we read scripture earlier. We were standing. Uh, but they would teach sitting down. That's the point. And so that was common. Luke notes that here in the text. And so after the sermon, there'd be a benediction. And again, at the end of the benediction, the congregation would say, Amen. That's what they would say. And thus concluded the worship at the synagogue. That's what it looked like in a Jewish synagogue. And so Jesus finds himself in his home church, if you will, the synagogue, and he's in a very, very familiar setting. And we know this because Luke tells us that he goes to the synagogue as was his custom. As was his custom. Jesus made corporate worship with the gathered body a priority in his life. 
It was not an occasional thing for him. It was his custom. It wasn't something that he did off and on spotty when there was time. It was his custom. It was his habit. It was what he did religiously, regularly. Gathering with God's people on the Sabbath was not optional for Jesus. It wasn't just one of of many competing priorities in his life. There was no other priority on the Sabbath but to be with God's people and to worship God. It was a regular part of his life. It was not negotiable. Wherever Jesus was on the Sabbath, you'd find him in the synagogue, worshiping with God's people. And as as I mentioned, this synagogue here in Nazareth was his home church. It was a community he grew, it was the church family he grew up with. He knew the people in the building. He'd been doing life with them for some time. He grew up weekly among them. You get to know people over time in the church that you grow up with. You get to know them sort of if, you, if, if they're there all the time and they're making it a habit of their life to be a part of the local body, then you get to know them, you know, all of them, the good, the bad. In Jesus' life, there was no bad. So I guess in his case, you got to know the good and the good. But the people in this church knew him. They knew him. He gathered weekly to pray with them. He gathered weekly to study with them. He, he, he gathered weekly with them to listen to teaching. Can you imagine how many bad sermons Jesus had to listen to in the synagogue? I mean, he is the word of God. He knew it better than anybody. Never one time do we see Jesus saying, oh, I just can't endure this horrible preaching anymore. I'm not going back. If anybody had reason to, he could. But he never neglected that. Mary and Joseph had established this priority in his life as godly parents do when he was young. And as he grew up into a man, he continued the custom. It was, it was in the context of, of the gathered body in the synagogue that he matured in his faith. And it's in that context that he's taught God's word. It's in that context that he saw godliness modeled in the lives of the other uh, uh, faithful believers around him. He, he learned the value of godly friends in the synagogue. He, he saw godly hospitality modeled within the context of the local synagogue. He learned the importance of encouragement and the importance of accountability in the life of the local synagogue. It was an integral part of his life. It wasn't an occasional add-on. And the sad reality today, if you will, is that so many people who identify with this same Jesus absolutely neglect the gathered body and the local community of Christ. For so many, gathering with God's people is viewed as an option. It's viewed as as, as one of, of many competing priorities in life. I mean, maybe, you know, we'll hit it every once in a while when there's nothing else going on, but there's other things. There's soccer, and there's this event, and there's that event, and we've got to go here, and we've got to go there, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do that. And so, so gathering with the local body becomes really just sort of an occasional add-on to a very, very busy life with which many other things compete for our time and attention. This wasn't the reality for Jesus. But in our day, it is for the people who identify with him. For many, church membership is neglected or in some cases outright denied. People live largely, many, as spiritual nomads, just sort of bouncing about from here to there, never actually making a commitment to anything or any place or anyone, just sort of perpetual guests 
sort of one foot in and one foot out all the time. And I'll tell you, this next Sunday will be my 26th anniversary in full-time ministry, pastoral ministry. And in those years, I can tell you in this regard, I've heard it all. I've heard it all, reasons why people don't adopt the heart of Christ and make gathering with the local body an integral piece of their life. One of the most common ones I hear, and you've heard it too, maybe you've said it before, if you said it to me, well, we're going to talk about it now. It's okay, I'm not singling you out, it's probably others. Here it is. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Raise your hand if you've heard somebody say that. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. While philosophically true, it's practically ridiculous. And it's biblically unheard of. The idea of an individual Christian disconnected from a local body of believers is completely foreign to the New Testament. There is no such animal in the New Testament. No example of this. The New Testament pattern is very, very clear. You go to the book of Acts and you see the establishment of the local church, the Christian church, which is, becomes the Christian parallel to the Jewish synagogue, if you will. And you see it begin to launch. And you see from the very beginning the church is launched, there's a pattern. The gospel goes out. People hear the gospel. They respond to the gospel. They're saved. They're baptized. And they're added to the church. Before they hear the gospel, they're outside the church. They hear the gospel, they believe, they're baptized, and then they're added to the church. Before that, they're not in the church. After that, they're in the church. It's a very clear demarcation. The local church is being spoken of in all of those contexts, not just the universal church of Christ. There is no content, no, no concept whatsoever of sort of the independent Christian floating around disconnected from a local body of believers. In fact, in the New Testament, I would argue that a connection with the local body of believers is absolutely assumed. It's assumed. Most of the New Testament itself is written to local churches, not to independent believers. And the instructions written in those letters largely are to be carried out within the context of a group of people. The church. Throughout the New Testament, you can do this study on your own. It's a fun little Bible study. Go through your Bible or find a concordance or something and see how many times the New Testament tells you and me as Christians to do something to, for, or with one another. One another. Practicing all the one another's in the Bible assumes the context of the local church. First Peter 1 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, Peter writes, love one another deeply from the heart. This isn't a casual love, it's a deep love that involves a heart connection and a relationship and a love and a care that shares good times and shares bad times together in the context of the local gathered body. Just a quick, just a quick overview here. I'll, go ahead and put the next slide up there for me, if you will. The things that we're called to do with one another, for one another, to one another, outdo one another in showing honor, accept one another, greet one another, serve one another, bearing with one another, submit to one another, bear with each other, and forgive one another. Teach and admonish one another, encourage one another, spur one another on 
toward love and good deeds. Offer hospitality to one another. All of those are written to the local body of believers. How in the world can we practice and obey those commands in the Bible, living as an independent contractor, separated from any one another? Practicing spiritual gifts also assumes the context of the local church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul writes, To each is given manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are given to individual believers. Why are they given? So that we can hoard them and enjoy them for ourselves? No, spiritual gifts have been given to you and been given to me. For what purpose? For the common good. That means God has given me gifts, and those gifts are to be employed in the local body of believers, and and they're to be employed for your good. And it also means that God has given you, as Christians, spiritual gifts, and your gifts are expected to be employed in the local body of believers to which you're connected for my good and for the good of everyone else. Your gifts are for my good. My gifts are for your good. Others need what you have to offer. You need what others have to offer. My spiritual gift, excuse me, my my spiritual growth depends in some part on you exercising your gifts in the body. And your spiritual growth depends at least to some degree on me exercising my spiritual gifts in the body and us being connected in in such a way that those things are the reality that we experience on a regular basis together. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Philosophically true, practically ridiculous. Another one that I hear often is the Bible doesn't say I have to join a church. The Bible doesn't say I have to join a church. I've heard this often. Now it's true in a sense. If If you mean by that, that you flip through the pages of your Bible, you will not find a verse that says, thou shalt join a local church. But I would argue that there are many things that the Bible calls us to do for which there is no direct precept like that. Simply because we can't find a verse that explicitly says that does not mean that church membership is not biblical. Again, the pattern in Acts is saved, baptized, added to the church. There's, There's no other pattern apart from that. The idea of a, someone who's saved, baptized, and then independent is completely foreign. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes about the church uh, to which Timothy is leading at the time, and, and he talks about a, a list of widows that the church is keeping. The church is keeping a list of widows for the purpose of ministering to them well. A church that keeps a list of widows, uh, it's hard to imagine that they don't have a, a clear list of members, people who are a part of the church. If you were to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, we won't do that today, but there were sort of laid out for us a whole accountability process for living our lives within the context of the local church. And he tells us what to do if, if, if there's a problem we have with other believers, if someone sins against us. What is, what is the process? Well, the problem is somebody sins against us. Well, I'm to go to that person, and I'm to individually try and resolve that. If it doesn't work out, I'm to go get two or three godly other people, and I'm to then go engage them again and try and resolve that. And if that doesn't get resolved at that level, verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three that I bring with me, what do you do? Well, you tell it, to whom? To the church. You tell it to the church. What is the church here that you're telling it to? 
It's the local church. It's the local body of believers, the clearly defined group who makes up the membership of the local church. And he says that you're then to treat them like a Gentile if they don't repent, which is an unbeliever, which is in essence to say you remove them from the fellowship. And in order to be able to, to remove someone from the fellowship, they have to first, are you following me with the logic here? They have to first be in it. There's a clear demarcation between who is a part of the church officially and who is not. You're either in it or you're out of it. The church of Jerusalem, certainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, knew who was a part of the church and who wasn't a part of the church. And let me just say one other thing about this. The office of pastor or elder requires a clear church membership. It requires it. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me ask you a question. How is it possible to obey that requirement without being an official part of a local body of believers? How can you obey your leaders and submit to them if you're not a part of something that has leaders with whom you're to submit and obey? Furthermore, it tells me as a pastor that I have spiritual responsibility in your life, that I have a responsibility uh, to, to shepherd this flock, and that I have a responsibility as an elder, uh, to, as he says here, to watch over souls. And, and then not only that, I'm, I'm, I'm called to watch over souls, and I'm told further that I'm going to give an account for how I go about doing that one day. So then the question is begged, then, who am I responsible for? Who is it that I'm responsible for? Is it every Christian in Charleston? Absolutely not. Is it anybody who shows up here at any time? No, of course not. I'm accountable before the Lord for the people who are members of this congregation, for the membership of this church. It's my responsibility to watch over your soul and to care for you, and I have to give an account for that. I can't possibly obey the Lord in this regard if I have no idea who my flock is. Neither can any other elder. I've had people say to me, well, I had a bad experience with the church. Well, to which I say amen and amen. Whoever has been in church life for very long hasn't had a bad experience in church. Churches are filled with people, and people are imperfect people. That's why, that's part of the essence of the church. The church is a gathered group of people who know they're not right, who know that they're imperfect, who know that they have fallen short of the glory of God and need the grace of God every day, not only to be saved, but to, to even remotely function in living a life that honors Christ. So you put a bunch of people like that together, and guess what? There's going to be pain, and there's going to be difficulty, and there's going to be hardship, and you're going to have some bad experiences. But you have some good ones too. And having a bad experience in a church somewhere is no excuse to live in disobedience to the Lord and to refuse to join another. I'll tell you right now, I'm glad my parents established early in my life the priority of the gathered body of the church. who taught me early that church wasn't optional, that being a part of the local body was modeled by Christ and that it needed to be important to me. As I sort of think back over my life, I can think at different seasons of my life how God used different people in the church in very, very significant ways in my life. I can think of Sunday school teachers who had a tremendous impact on me, uh, particularly when I was younger. I can remember 
one particular Sunday school teacher who, who uh, uh, much to my chagrin at the time, forced me to memorize the books of the Bible. But I did it, and I still know them today because of that teacher. I can still remember <clears throat> youth pastors who were really very, very significant in my life at very pivotal points all along the way. And uh, I, can re- I can see their faces. I can hear their words in my mind now. I can remember a, a friend who was just a, a guy I went to church with <clears throat> who in college one day asked me if I wanted to come over to his house at 6 o'clock in the morning and listen to sermon tapes by some guy named John MacArthur who I'd never heard of before. But I knew his mom bought the best coffee ever and it was worth getting up at 6 a.m. for. And so I remember sitting in his room drinking coffee and listening to sermons. All of that in the context of the local church. Blessing after blessing in life that comes from that. When Jesus goes back to Nazareth, he goes to his home synagogue. He can't imagine going anywhere else. He couldn't imagine going anywhere else. And it would be natural for him to be asked to participate when he gets there. And so he goes and he participates. And he's going to preach a sermon in his church, his home church. And it's going to be a whopper of a sermon. It's going to be much shorter than the one you're listening to today. But it nearly gets him killed. And I'm looking at you right now, and I don't think you're, you're planning that for me. I'll tell you one thing. It's one thing to preach to strangers. It's another thing to go where people know you and preach. And Jesus goes into his own home church. And he pre- I remember my first sermon. The first sermon I ever preached was at my home church where I grew up. I remember that. I was in high school, a senior. We did this thing called Youth Sunday, where the youth sort of took over the church and did the music and, you know, taught the Sunday school classes and somebody preached and my youth pastor asked me to do it. I did not want to do it. It was only pride uh, at being made fun of by my friends if I chickened out that I I stepped up to do it. I remember drinking like eight cups of coffee that morning and, and being terrified, literally shaking, terrified. And I remember this, the feeling of relief when that was over. And I remember people asking me at the doorway, oh, that was great. Don't, do you want to be a preacher when you grow up? And I remember saying, oh, ladies, if you only knew. It's the last thing I ever want to do. I'm never doing that again. God has a sense of humor, right? Well, Jesus preaches to his church family. And it's a whopper of a one-liner sermon. He reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He chooses a passage in Isaiah 61 and quotes it almost verbatim with one simple exclusion, which we'll look at next Sunday. And he rolls up the scroll and he puts the scroll down. And the eyes of everybody in the place are fixed on him, Luke says. He reads and everybody is, there's nobody daydreaming. There's nobody thinking about lunch. There's nobody nodding off. They're fixed on him. What is he going to say? And he says one thing. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It was a messianic passage that we'll look at in detail next time. But he says to them, you know this, this Messiah that Isaiah prophesied all those years ago? 
It's me. It's me. I'm right in front of you. Yeah, the kid that grew up in the neighborhood here, I'm him. Him. Well, that's a pretty good sermon. It's a pretty good sermon. And people were pretty impressed by it. Although they were kind of mumbling among themselves, isn't that Joseph's son? Joseph the carpenter, isn't that his boy? Kind of what you would be doing if somebody stood up here and said they were the Messiah, right? But then he goes on to explain some things that are very hard for his local church family to hear. Some things they didn't want to hear. Some things that make them very angry. So angry that they that the church family turns into a, a lynch mob and they run him out the building with the intention of throwing him off a cliff. Must be something in what he said that didn't sit well. What is it? Well, you'll have to come back next week and we'll find out. We'll find out. So maybe we'll just land it this way. How important is the local church to you? I think it's important to ask the question, how important is that to you? How important is it to you to to be involved with other believers, not just to be an anonymous ghost that passes in and out, but for gathering with God's people to become your custom, your habit, your weekly reality, not just an add-on, not just a a piece of life that's sort of an optional competing priority. What would it take in your life for that to become the reality? Wherever you are right now, and I don't know where you all are, the only thing I know is is who comes around on Sunday mornings, and I'm really not even good at keeping track of that. People ask me all the time, hey, did you see so-and-so at church now? I'm like, I don't don't know, maybe. I saw him sometime in the last month. I don't know if it was today. I don't take role. So I don't know what the situation is in your life, but you know the situation in your life. How important is it for you? Is it your custom to be embedded in the life of God's people? If it's not, then why not? What silly excuse are you making for why that's not the custom of your life? And what would it look like for you to cast aside those silly excuses and to just simply submit yourself to what's taught in the the Bible, to what Jesus himself did, and become a part of the local church, and to embed your life with other believers in the way Jesus did? I'm convinced from Scripture that to not do that is to be in disobedience to the Word of God. I'm convinced of that. Maybe you're not, but I am. I'm convinced of that. So what's keeping you from making the local church your custom? What do you need to do to make that right this morning? Let's pray about that together. Lord Jesus, you've modeled for us truth and wisdom You didn't didn't embed yourself in the local synagogue life for no purpose. You did it because you're modeling something, not just for first century Jews, for people like us. You were showing us that we were made for community, 
Oh, we live in a nation where we value independence. And songs like I Did It My Way or hits, legends. But that's never been your way for your people. You've called us to live in community with other people. You've called us to be embedded in life with a local body of believers, officially. Not halfway in, halfway out. Not sometimes hot, sometimes cold. Not when we have nothing better to do. And yet life pulls at us in every direction. And this last year has been hard, Lord. It's been hard. The virus has been blazing through and it pushed us all into our homes for a long period of time. And a new custom developed on the Lord's day. And yet now, Lord, the opportunity is in front of us to be back, to be fully engaged in your church with your people. Lord, I pray for my friends who've gathered here. I pray that they would hear your word loud and clear. That they would hear your call to be embedded with your people. Lord, for those who've neglected it, Lord, to convict them of that sin and draw them to repentance this morning. For that person who's here that doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, they are a perpetual guest. Because to be a part of the church, you have to be a Christian. Someone who's repented of their sin and by faith embraced you as their Lord and Savior, recognizing you're their only hope. For those who've gathered this morning who've never made that conscious decision in their life, pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that they might be saved, baptized, and added to your church. We pray it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.